So why did you come to put your faith in Christ and someone else didn't? It's a debate, or not a debate, but a discussion Jen and I have quite a bit because both of us growing up had friends in similar situations, friends with similar backgrounds, and yet they never came to put their faith and trust in Christ. And so we discussed this, like, what on earth happened? Why, why do we get to be lavished by God's grace, and yet these other people are still living in rebellion? And as far as we have come to know, or, or what we have come to conclude is, it's a mystery. We can't figure it out. It's surely not because we're more intelligent. There are a lot of people that are more intelligent than me that are still living in rebellion. It's surely not because there, there are more humble people. There are by far more humble people than I am that are still living in rebellion. It's not because they're more moral. There are people that are actually more moral than I am, that have lived a more uprighteous life than I have, that are still living in rebellion against God. So why is it that I came to put my faith and trust in Christ and some of my best friends growing up still live in rebellion? It's a mystery. It's a mystery that I don't think we can actually solve here on earth. But what we do oftentimes is we try to solve it. And so we start to develop theories and theologies trying to explain how come some people come to the faith and others reject it. And and there are several different theories, but what happens is we start trying to explain it and we get in debates about it and we get so focused on why some and not others that we actually lose track of all the blessings God gives when you are in the faith. And that's what we're going to discuss today as we start or continue our series, Better Together, a look through Ephesians. Now, uh, I, I titled this Better Together because the book of, of Ephesians talks about being united together. There's some, some diverse problems and diversity problems within the church at Ephesus, and Paul is writing to help them be united together. So just like the majority of the Pauline epistles, the first three chapters are just theology. And the theology that we're going to study for the first three chapters is how God brought us together. And then the next three chapters will be because God has done this marvelous thing, bringing us together and blessing us, then how should we live? So today we're going to start off with Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. It will be the introduction and then what's called a benediction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So this letter opens up as a typical ancient letter. Paul, or he gives us the greeting, he gives us uh, his identification. He is Paul, the apostle. An apostle was simply someone who was sent with the authority of the sender. So you might hear the word apostle throughout different letters, but that just simply meant that this person was going with the the authority of the person who was sending him. So an apostle of Jesus Christ was someone who was sent by Jesus Christ with the authority of Jesus Christ. We believe that that office of apostle ceased when the apostles died off, because no longer is Jesus personally assigning people to be apostles. So during his earthly ministry, he gathered 12 apostles. One died off. The the apostles gathered together. And what was one of the requirements? He had to be someone who was with them from the beginning. So he was someone who was discipled in person by Christ. And then Paul becomes an apostle later on, but it is through a direct revelation where Christ appears to him and assigns him the office of apostle. So we've got the apostles who were sent with the authority of Christ. They were acting on behalf of Christ by the will of God. So we see that God has willed or God has planned out to have these apostles, and God has a plan for Paul to be an apostle. God has an assignment for your life as well. Our job is to recognize and to figure out what that assignment is and then to live out that assignment. So God has an assignment for you. You need to look for that assignment and live that assignment out. So that's, that's the, the person who is writing, Paul the Apostle, who is an apostle by the will of God, then he gives who it's to. It is to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this word saints is a very Jewish word. We get it kind of mixed up because we have a very uh, modern day idea of what this word means. Most people think this word means someone who is morally perfect, or at least morally really good. So when we think of saints, you know, like the Catholic Church has a whole list of requirements before they can put someone into the the category of saint. And they had to live an almost morally perfect life. They had to do so many miracles, and these miracles had to be attested to. And so we kind of adopt that kind of Catholic lookout on sainthood. So when we think of saints, when you, when you hear someone say, oh, that boy, he was just such a saint, what do, you, what do they mean? They mean that person, that boy, was just a really well-behaved boy. 
He didn't go start fights. He didn't use any bad language. Or someone might say that girl was a saint. What do you think they're saying? Just the same thing, right? That was a really well-behaved girl. But that's not what the Jewish word actually meant. To be a saint meant to be set apart. That's what sainthood is. It is God setting people apart. So Paul here is addressing, and almost all of his letters, the introduction looks like this. He is addressing a group of saints. People who have been set apart by God. So this is a Jewish word. The Israelites were considered saints because the the nation itself had been set apart by God. Have you ever considered yourself a saint? How does one become a saint? Well, we've we've already recognized that it's not through your behavior. Here he describes how someone becomes a saint. So, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This term faithful means that they have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. And that's how you become a saint. That is how you become set apart. By placing your faith in Christ Jesus, you become a saint. Have you considered yourself a saint? If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, it doesn't matter how bad you have been in the past. It doesn't matter how bad you messed up today. You could have been speeding the whole way here and swearing at the guy behind you, and you are still considered a saint if you put your faith and trust in Christ. Because sainthood is not something you have done. Sainthood is something God has done for you. So you can't mess it up. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you are a saint. You have been set apart by God. Who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This term, in Christ, is going to be a major theme throughout this book. It's going to be used ten times during this introduction and benediction. So 3 through 14 are going to be, is a benediction. It's an important theme to be found in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you have a new identity. Identity is something that people talk a lot about in this culture. How do you identify yourself? What do you identify yourself by? What is your identity? And there's people that that are trying to figure out their identity. It reminds me of uh, when I was a youth pastor. Middle school kids were notorious for trying to figure out who they were. Who am I? And they were always trying on new identities, kind of like a new hat. Some of them, like every week, they had a new hat on. They had a new identity. In fact, quite literally, uh, there was this one kid. Uh, he, was, he was a phenomenal athlete. Uh, and he would have called himself a jock. He considered his identity was in sports. Who are, when asked, who are you? He said, I'm an athlete. That's who I am. But one day as we were going to camp, he shows up. And instead of his normal like baseball cap on, He quite literally changed hats, and he had a bandana on, and he was carrying a skateboard. And he comes up to me and goes, Aaron, this week, I'm going to be a skater. He was trying out a new identity. He was saying, this is who I am. This is how I present myself to the world. In Christ means you have a new identity, and how you define yourself is no longer by worldly terms. It is simply by Christ is by this term Christian. 
Your new identity no longer becomes, hey, I am the pro athlete. I am the pro guitarist. I am the whatever you fill in the blank. Sometimes people want to be identified by their sexuality. And what he's saying here is, those things don't identify you anymore. Your sexuality, your, the things you do, your job, how you earn an income, your prestige, that's not how you identify yourself. You identify yourself by the one who saved you, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to start explaining what that means. What does it mean to have an identity in Christ? So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's simply the greeting. And it's worthy to know, and we mention this almost every time we read a Pauline letter, is that we can't have peace with God without his grace. So without God's grace, we will always have enmity towards God. We will always struggle with God. But it is because of his grace that we can have peace with God. So then we get into the benediction. The benediction starts in verse 3, and it starts off with, Blessed be the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are three blessed here, and each one of them is different. So one is an adjective, one is a verb, and one is a noun. The adjective is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's describing God as blessed. And then he, he lets us know that, that God has blessed us. There's the verb, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and there is the noun. And essentially, it's kind of like what he's saying is that uh, we should praise God. The first blessed, that adjective, means to praise. So we praise God because God has favored us. So when God gets, lavished his grace upon you, he blessed you. He highly favors you. And the result should then be to praise Him back. To worship Him. In fact, these are going to be two bookends with the uh, benediction here. So the end will actually be with another praise to God. Why do we praise God? Because He has lavished His grace and He has blessed us beyond our comprehension. So then He's going to go on and He's going to outline how God has blessed us throughout this benediction. But it is also important before we leave verse 3 to recognize that he has blessed us with every blessing. Not just some blessings. It's not a partial blessing here. It's all. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's also not a materialistic blessing. If we remember, Paul is writing this in prison. But some people have this false belief that a blessing is simply a material blessing. That when, and there's some preachers that are making a lot of money off of it right now that says, hey, God wants to bless you with material wealth. And so if you just give me some money and make me a millionaire, then God will really bless you materially. And that's not what he's getting at at all. That's a false gospel. It's not a material blessing. Paul is writing this in prison. He knows firsthand that he's not being materially blessed. That this isn't like some monetary thing. Paul knows that he's not going to end up this incredibly wealthy man who can just do whatever he wants whenever he wants. It's a spiritual blessing. It's something much greater. 
much deeper and longer lasting. Blessing in the heavenly places. And that's just to reiterate that that is like God's realm. And that realm is actually more real than this. Earth will pass away. There will be a day when God melts it. But heaven will not. So when we think about the material things, oftentimes, you know, we look around at things that have been around for centuries and we think, wow, that's amazing. But the heavenly blessings, the spiritual blessings, are permanent and they will last forever. He goes on, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we have to stop and talk about this. This word chose is uh, election, what, where we get the term election from. Eklegomai is the, uh, the Greek word. And it means, it means just that, to choose or to elect. Now, this is a really important, once again, this is a very Jewish term. It's an important term to the Jews because the Jews recognized themselves as God's elect. They would actually go around, and in particular during this time, this time period is called the Second Temple Judaism, and they had some what are called cultural identity markers. So a cultural identity marker is how you identify yourself as a culture. Well, in Second Temple Judaism, one of the first cultural identity markers is the temple. You can't have Second Temple Judaism without a temple. But another one of those Second Temple Judaism cultural markers is this idea of election. This idea that they are God's special people that were chosen and set apart by God. So often we read this, and we, we read it God, even as he chose us. That's a, a first-person plural, but we oftentimes read it as a second person. In fact, I've heard people read this as a second person and say, even as he chose you. And I think we're missing the mark when we read it like that. This isn't about God electing you to be a part of the body of Christ. This whole benediction is going to be about God electing the body of Christ. And that's an important distinction because it's, we're going to outline how God has predetermined, predestined the body of Christ. So even as he chose us, this is a, 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 Paul is laying out a major theme of the letter that God uh, is doing something new. He is bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together into one body, the body of Christ. And so that is laying out this theme, this foundation. So even as he chose us in him, and this term us is used another like 10 times throughout this benediction. And then actually we'll get to verse 13 where he's going to switch it to that second person plural. So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So he's getting at here that he chose, or God planned, I should say, the body of Christ before he even created the world. That's what Paul's saying here. That the, the body of Christ was not a haphazard creation by God. It wasn't like God got so frustrated with the Jews that he's like throwing his arms up and he's like, that's it. I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to make this new thing and it's going to be called the body of Christ. It's going to be the church and I'm done with Israel. What he's saying here is that before the foundation of the world, God chose to create 
what would be called the church, the body of Christ. He's not haphazard about this. And then all the blessings that he is describing is blessings for those who are in the body of Christ. That God predetermined before he created the world that he would bless those in the body of Christ with. It kind of makes me think of, uh, you know, I went shopping the other day and I walked past some green chilies and I thought of some friends of mine who love green chilies, and so I bought them some green chilies. Now, that was kind of a flippant purchase. It was a good, it, like, it was a good thing. My heart was in the right place. I'm not saying that that was bad of me, but it wasn't thought out. It was just a flippant purchase. That's not how God works. If I had said, you know, green chilies are in season, and I know my friends like green chilies, so I'm going to plan out to go buy those green chilies for them. That's how God planned out the church, right? It was beforehand he knew what he was going to do with the church. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he even created it. And, and then he starts to get into all these blessings, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So holy is almost the exact same word as saints there. It's hagias. And it means kind of the same thing. It's just to be set apart. When it's applied to people, we, we define it as saint. When it's applied to, uh, well, it's also applied to people here, but it's still holy. It's set apart. It's the same Greek root word to be set apart. So he, he chose us before the foundation of the world, just like he, he chose or elected Israel before the foundation of the world, that he would use Israel for a certain purpose. The same is true for the church that he has set us apart before the foundation of the world. He set the church apart that he would use us. And not only did he set us apart, but he also made us blameless. This means pure, without fault. Once again, this is something that Christ has done for us, not something that we can do on our own. Before him, in love. Now, uh, you, some of you will recognize that in love is a new sentence, but verse 5 comes after in love. Uh, it's important to note that this whole benediction in the Greek is one long run-on sentence. So as people are translating it, they, uh, they try to figure out where there should be sentences. This is one of those places that there's a little bit of a debate. And some people actually stick it back in with holy and blameless before him in love, meaning this is describing of how we should be because he's made us holy, he's made us blameless, and he's made us to love one another and him. Other people would actually put the period after him and put it forward saying that in love he predestined us. And they would say it's because of God's love, it is his love for us that drives him to this predestination. Predestination is that he determined before the world was made. He predetermined for us to be adopted to himself as sons. So he knew that there was going to be this group called the body of Christ, and anyone that was in that group was going to be adopted into his sonship. This term adoption is really important for us to grasp. In the Roman culture, if you were adopted, you were on equal standing as the son. Think about that for a second and what that implies. 
when we went through the adoption process. We didn't adopt our daughter to be like a second-class child. It wasn't like we were bringing her into the house and saying, okay, sweet, we have a daughter, and she'll never get an inheritance from us, because that goes to the sons. And she'll never, we'll never actually like provide health care, or sometimes when we go on vacation, we just leave her behind. Because, you know, she's just an adopted child. No, that wasn't it at all. We brought her into the family, and, and we looked at her as our own. And we said, she is ours. She is on the same playing field. She's on the same level as our sons. She gets every benefit of being our child, which there's not a whole lot of benefits to being our child, but she gets every single one of them, just like our sons do. Maybe we should say she gets all the same baggage as our, uh, as our sons get, right? But, but she's equal with them. We take her on vacation. She is seen as one of our owns. Someone really offended me over the summer when they, when they asked me, so you have some real kids and, and some not real kids? No, they are all my kids. They are perfectly mine. I see them all as mine. How dare you say that to me? So I took a big breath and just responded, no, I have all, all my kids are real. But think about what this means. Who is the son? The son is Jesus Christ. That's God's son. And then he adopts us into this, into this family of his, and he says, you are on the same level field as my son Jesus. I gave Jesus all these benefits, and you get them too. You get an inheritance just like Jesus. I see, when I look at you, I see you just as I see Jesus with love. And then he says he adopted himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And this is so important because the only way that we can have this adoption, the only way we can call ourselves sons and daughters of God is because it's through Christ that we are adopted. And this is so important because when we sin, that is a truly offensive to a righteous and holy God. God is righteous. He is holy. He is just. He's also love. But because he is just and holy, sin cannot be tolerated by him. And because you and I have all sinned, that means we have been separated from God. So Jesus came. And because we've been separated and because we have rebelled against God, there is a price that has to be paid for our sin, for justice and righteousness to be satisfied. And it's a price that neither you nor I could pay. And so Jesus comes, and He lives a perfect life, and He pays the price for your sin and my sin, for our rebellion. And the only way that we can have that same standing as Christ, where we're considered holy and blameless and righteous, and pure, where we can be called justified is by putting our faith and trust in Christ. And once we put our faith and trust in Christ, then God doesn't see our old identity that is full of sin anymore. When He looks at you, He sees Christ. And He sees Christ's holiness, Christ's righteousness. 
And He draws you in as an adopted child. It can only happen through Jesus Christ. So it's happened through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glory, or glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. So this term redemption has a very specific meaning in the Roman world, and that was to purchase a slave for the sake of freedom. So this was a way that a slave would become free was through this idea of redemption. And the point that he's getting at here is that you and I were slaves to sin. That sin had control over us. And if you've never come to terms with the fact that sin has had control over you, you need to come to terms with that fact. Because if you've never come to terms with that fact, you might not think that you need a Savior. You might think that you're perfectly fine or that you could earn your righteousness yourself. But the fact is, you and I have been dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning that we were without ability. We couldn't do it on our own. We were slaves to sin. Sin was actually calling the shot in our lives. Have you ever wondered why you did the thing that you hated to do? You knew it was a sin. You knew it was jacked up of you to do. You knew it was rebellious against God, and yet you did it anyway. It's because you were a slave to sin. But here we see this blessing that God has blessed us with, and that is He has redeemed us from that slavery. He has purchased us from slavery to sin and made us free from sin. So we no longer have to be controlled by sin. And it was through His blood that paid the price. The forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. So here it is that He's just describing this a a little bit uh, more, that it is through the forgiveness of our trespasses, that because of uh, His redemption occurred through His blood, and that was also the forgiveness of our sins. That God no longer holds that sin against you. That's no longer on your mark. If If God was an accountant, and He had a ledger, and you had all these sins marked up against you, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, He erased it all. He said that is no longer on your account. All that sin in the past. And some of us still hold on to it and beat ourselves up, and we think that we need to redeem ourselves somehow from our sin in the past, and there's nothing you can do. There's no amount of prayers, there's no amount of good works, None of that can actually erase your sin. It was all done by Christ. He's the one that erased it all. According to the riches of His grace. So we see that He has lavished His grace upon us. And what's amazing is, before He even created the world, He had a plan to lavish His grace upon the body of Christ. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so, in all wisdom and insight, this is a thoroughly thought through plan of His. Once again, I go back to that store. He's not flippantly buying us stuff. He's not like, oh, you know what would be a good blessing for them today if I just forgave their sins? Man, that was a great idea. I'm glad I came up with it today. 
Oh, you know what would be another great one? Is to give them an inheritance and adoption. That's, those are great ideas. No, what he's getting at here is that this is a thoroughly thought out plan. Before God even decided to create the world, he decided that he would create a body of Christ and that he would bless this body of Christ with all of these fantastic blessings. It is a well thought out plan that God has put into action making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So uh, uh, this is another major theme throughout this book is the mystery. Chapter 3 is going to really explain this mystery, but chapter 10 gives uh, gives us the answer. Not a thorough explanation of the answer, but it is an answer to what is the mystery. Because he has made known this mystery to us. You probably even know the idea, but you don't even know that you know that this was a mystery. But this was a mystery, and in particular to the culture that Paul is writing to, it's a mystery. So what is the answer? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So if we walk back again, for the Jew, it was we are the elect, we are God's chosen people, we are God's holy people, and there's the scum of the earth, the Gentiles. Now if the Gentiles want to convert to Judaism, great. They got to jump through the hoops. They have to follow the law. What's the mystery? The mystery is that from the beginning of the world, before he even started to create, God knew that he would unite all people around Christ. So the mystery is that God is restructuring the universe with Christ at the center, and all things will be united in Christ. That's the mystery. That's what's going to unfold throughout the rest of this letter. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. So in Him, this is that theme again that's in Christ, which is really awesome when you consider that God is, the mystery is that God is restructuring the entire universe around Him, and we get to partake because we are found in Him. The one who God is restructuring the universe around, we are in. We have obtained an inheritance. This inheritance is that God has given those in Christ a part of the restructuring. As God restructures the universe, He has given us a part of that. That is part of your inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of whom who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is just re-emphasizing that this was part of his plan all along. Once again, he didn't just get frustrated with Israel and say, forget you guys, I'm going to do something new. He was like, this is my plan. All along, I set Israel aside and I made them a holy nation so that I could bring my Messiah And this Messiah, he's going to die on the cross for all sins. And he will unite all people together. And I'm going to call this new group the body of Christ. It is a part of his plan from the beginning. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory I think what he's getting at, some, there's a little bit of debate here. Some people think that this is a Jew versus Gentile thing and that uh, Paul is referencing 
Uh, the Jews who were the first to believe might be to the praise of his glory. I don't think that's it because all of these us's include the body of Christ. So throughout all of this, the first person plural is the body of Christ altogether. I think what he's getting at here is that there will become a day of God's wrath. But we have hope because we aren't going to experience God's wrath. But when God's wrath is poured out, everybody will sit in front of the judgment seat. Every single human that ever lived. But we have hope. And it's to the praise of His glory. He continues, In Him, and this is where we get the second person plural pronoun switch, In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So I'm going to stop right there. So we've been, this whole time we've been talking about the body of Christ. That God elected, theologians call this corporate election. That God elected a body to experience all these blessings that he was going to lavish upon them. So then how do you and I become part of this body? Well, here he outlines it. First, you hear the word of truth, the gospel. So you hear the God's word, and in particular, you hear about how you are a sinner, depraved, dead in your trespasses and sins, and yet because God loved you with such a great love, he came to pay the price for your sins. He died on the cross, and he rose again. So you hear it, and you believe it. That's how you become part of the body that experiences all of these blessings. Now there's a couple things that we have to note here. One is that there is a responsibility or a stewardship of the gospel that we as a church have. How can they hear if there's no one there to preach? How can people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who don't get to receive these blessings, ever going to put their faith and trust in Christ if they never hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation? There is a stewardship issue that we who have the gospel need to be good stewards of the gospel and need to share the gospel with others. Now, that's how you come to be a part of the body of Christ. That's how you come into the corporate body that gets to receive all these blessings. But that still doesn't answer the question. Why did I come to faith? And my friend who is more intelligent and more humble and more moral than I am still live in rebellion. And it doesn't answer that. So I have to stick with That's a mystery that I don't think I'll ever figure out in this lifetime. But it doesn't change my stewardship responsibility. Whatever the answer is, God didn't give it to us, but he did give us a responsibility to share the gospel. And then he explains what happens when we believe. And believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this sealing is actually a reference to a king's seal. So when a king would make a law, he would seal it with his signet ring that would seal it. And when he sealed that law into place, no one could break the law, not even the king himself could break that law. And that's what this is a reference to. 
Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you believe in Him, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and that is the Holy Spirit sealing you for the day of salvation, meaning that God, that God has put His stamp on you, He has sealed you tight, and no one is going to break that seal. No one can break that seal. Not even God Himself will break that seal. How great of a promise is that? That you have been sealed, your salvation is secure until the day... Let me just back up. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So we get to experience spiritual blessings today. We get to experience that we are free from slavery to sin. We get to experience that we are called blameless, righteous, and holy. And yet there are still more spiritual blessings to come. And the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing us, He has stamped us, He has sealed us, He is guaranteeing us that we will receive all of the blessings, every single spiritual blessing. And He will seal us until the day that we take possession or acquire possession of it. And then He gives us the last bookend. He's given us all of these blessings. And what is the result? To the praise of His glory. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has predetermined before the foundation of the world to build a body of Christ. And those who are found in the body of Christ will receive forgiveness from sins, will receive redemption, will be adopted as a son will have an inheritance, will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the way to be put in that body of Christ is to believe in the Gospel. And the only response that is appropriate is praising our God, our Savior. To bless Him because He has blessed us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We understand that there are mysteries in this world that we will never quite figure out. We pray that you would help us to, to not be distracted by what perplexes us, but to focus in on what we know. And what we know is that you came and you died for us so that we may live for you. And that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Help us to hold tight to those spiritual blessings that you have made us holy, righteous, blameless. You have redeemed us from our sin. You have wiped away our account. You have made it so we're no longer slaves. And you have called us your children. You have given us more than we could ever realize here on earth. And we pray that you would help us to turn around and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.